Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Exceptionally important research by the gentleman from Dartmouth, David Blanchflower, joins us now as public service to his United Kingdom, to his Wales, frankly, to his Cardiff football team as well. And we're <laughs> thrilled that Danny Blanchflower could join us this morning. I Danny, don't. I'm going to die. Good to see you. I'm going to digress here. I know John wants to drive in, dive into this uh, research. We are seeing big tech now show that David Card and Alan Kruger got it right. They nailed it on the minimum wage. Now we have big tech bidding up labor to $17, $18 an hour across America. What is the effect of big tech on the minimum wage? Well, uh, I, I always, living in Hanover, New Hampshire, Tom, my kids used to go and work at the local cinema and they'd work at 10 bucks an hour. Uh, and obviously north of the northern part of the United States, the minimum wage didn't bind. But what we're seeing here is a labor market adjusting to a shock um, and, and basically firms having to pay the going price. The question which you guys are all thinking about is, does that continue in the future? Just because there's a once off rise in wages, does it necessarily mean something going forward? For us, Dartmouth this week announced a 3% bonus for all its staff. But that lifts prices this year and does nothing next year. So the question is, you know, we're, we're emerging from a bottleneck. I don't see anything really, actually, that suggests that prices in 18 months will, will continue to rise. This is a once-off jump for an economy that's adjusting firms are having to, to pay for those shortages. But, but a rise today doesn't mean a rise tomorrow. Danny, I don't want to bury the lead here. You've got a recession call. A recession call. Yeah. When people are looking at 4% yeah. growth next year, what's the recession call about? Well, if you have a new paper coming out on Monday, if you and Dave Wilson tweet, put out this chart yesterday, if you look at what predicts all six of the last six recessions, it's actually consumer sentiment, consumer expectations. And that, if you look at the paper I have coming out, that turned in the U.S., around April, May this year. It looks almost identical to what happened in 2007. And people can poo-poo it, but these are the data. These data are precisely what explains six of the last six recessions, nothing else does, and there are no false calls. So the question is, what's going on? And I think the answer is that it's about the spread of COVID. We've seen, and, and at the, it's particularly amongst women who've said they're fearful of going back to work. We're seeing people withdrawing. And in the last month, we saw a huge drop in the female participation rate of 18 to 25 year olds and and uh, and, and uh, sorry, eight, uh, 25 to 35 year olds and 35 to 44 year olds. So I think it's women being very fearful. Anxiety in the US has risen. That suggests spending is going to pull back, and it would not be surprising, consistent with that, to see falls in retail trade. So I'm not saying this will happen, but all the other data is completely messed up. These data are the best you have, and it's red, and it now is flashing red. Danny, there's a lot here to pack uh, to unpack. We've got the participation rate, we've got the labor market, and the question over whether it's tight or loose. And then there's the issue of the importance of consumer sentiment surveys, which has been called into question by some people. Others would argue that if you look at other consumer sentiment surveys, like the Langer one, it shows a different picture than University of Michigan survey, that basically this isn't clean either. How would you respond? 
Well, you know, they can make stuff up, but the question is, what does the data actually show? And so there's an, the sets of econometrics particularly show that these things predict it. So you, you may not like it, but that's factually what it does, particularly in these data we actually now have from the, from the conference board. We have data since 2007 on the eight biggest states. Um, and basically, in, um, the expectations indices there predict behavior 12 months ahead. So people can poo-poo it. Just go and look at the data, run it yourself. It's not the case of they don't like it because they're just making it up. <laughs> the data shows that you can predict with exactly these data. The question is whether this is the, this is the seventh of seven, and is this the one that gets it wrong? Um, I think the concern is that most of the other data looks to be crazy. I mean, if you look at, Tom always asked me about the wage curve. Well, for every recession I've ever seen in the world, as the unemployment rate goes up, wage growth slows. Well, in this one, the opposite happened. The Phillips curve now slopes up. The wage curve slopes up. It's not clear that that's well, true. I just, most of the other data I don't believe. If you ask me which data I do believe, it's these data. So, Danny, underlying this is the idea that you don't think that the labor market is as tight as other people think. That is sort of the presumption that seems to be baked in. Can you explain why that is at a time when you do see all of these job openings and you do see uh, the wage hikes that we are seeing right now to entice people back into the labor force? Well, the, the best analogy is that this is like a hurricane hitting a place, hitting, say, I don't know, the, the coast of Florida. So presumably what happens when that occurs is the price of roofers and plumbers and gardeners rise as an economy adjusts. Just, just go back to the fact that we had in April 2020. The unemployment rate went from 3.5% to, when you calculate it right, to 20 and wage growth went from 3% to 8%. Well, so unemployment rises like crazy. So what happened was the bottom part of the labor market drops out. There are certainly adjustment costs coming and um, people are withdrawing from particular kinds of goods, for particular kinds of work. And firms are having to pay people because they don't want to go and work in a school. They don't want to work in, in consumer facing places. And that's the surveys from Grant Thornton and the conference board saying people, if they're forced to go back to work, they're going to look for another job or quit. So we're seeing people retiring. So this is an adjustment of an economy that's been hit by this shock and people are fearful. And all the evidence is that fear rose dramatically around May of this year. And it particularly is driven by women being fearful that they'll go to work and bring something home to their families. That's consistent with the data. I mean, whether, whether, this, is, um, whether this is predictive, we will see. But be mindful that the people who guess have no, uh, no mechanism by which they can predict the last six. And these data predict six of the last six. And so it's mindful to them to come up with, well, how do you predict recession? with what you have been talking about. And the answer is they can't. They're just making it up. Nobody has a crystal ball. Danny, it's always good to catch up, sir. Before you go, before you go, an important note. We were all thinking of the late, great Alan Kruger this week. Oh, yeah. I know you were too, sir. Oh, what yes. were your thoughts on that, buddy? Well, I'm so pleased that, that David Card and, and Josh and Guido got this prize. But if you, read, if you read the thing from the Nobel Prize Committee, most of this work was joint with Alan. Um, Alan, our friend and colleague, be on Bloomberg for a really long time. So I was really pleased that the prize came, but it was a sad day too. It was a great day for the work that he did. The guy was a shoe-in for a Nobel. Uh, and, and if you read it, I mean, he should have been there on the stage. His work is, was brilliant and wonderful. Yeah. And we miss him hugely. We don't understand oh, why massively, he left. massively, Danny. 
we all, just, we all miss just, him this week. And Danny, right. just finally, you've been saying for a long time, thinking about the work of Alan Kruger and others, that the Nobel Prize needed to change. We needed to, get to award it to someone who's actually found something out that we can right. work with. I think that's right. And if you look, I mean, the Economics Prize is a young prize. You award, you award stuff for methodology. Um, and eventually you have to stop that and, and, and actually you'll start to award it for people who found things. In essence, there was a prize two, two ago to Deflo and her husband, and that was great. But in, in essence, it probably should have come first to Card and Kruger. And in fact, if yeah. it had come then, <clears throat> Alan would have been alive. But, it, but I think what we're actually going to see, and you could look back on the prize in economics and say, well, what did these people find? Is, it, is what they actually wrote true? And the vast majority of the case, we have no idea. So yeah. I think increasingly what we're hopefully going to see, a prize is given to people who found stuff. And David Card and Alan Kruger found stuff about the minimum wage. David worked on the Mariel boat lift and worked on stuff about immigration and, you know, the rate of return to schooling and all sorts of right. cool things. So, I, so I'm just really impressed with it. But, but John, John and, and, and Tom, I mean, this, this guy was a great guy and we've missed him in America and the, and the, the academic community is worse off for the loss of Alan Kruger. Hear, hear. Danny, hear, hear. A great man. Danny Blanchard, thank you, sir. We finished strong here in this last half hour this morning with Jennifer Lee, senior economist at BMO. We're thrilled that she could join us this morning. Jennifer, the arch debate right now is a consumer where the glass is half full or a consumer where the glass is half empty. Which is it? Uh, I'm going to go with the glass is half full story. Um, good morning, everyone. I think uh, if you heard a big sigh of relief down in the studio, it was probably me when I, when I saw the, the headline numbers. Uh, as Mike was just saying, you know, very strong beat and uh, strength across the board. Some weird um, results, uh, such as, as you pointed out, with, with the auto sector, with uh, stronger auto sales. But, so I'll take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Maybe they're starting to get a little bit of uh, relief, I think, mm -hmm. uh, just getting some more chips out there and into the cars <laughs> and off the lots. I think the most telling or the most interesting uh, point, this is the one I always look at, uh, is like the dining out. Just, um, I think that speaks volumes about you know, where the consumer is at these days and if they're right. still confident enough and still com comfortable enough to go out there and you know, have lunch or have a glass of wine on the patio. I think that's, that's very positive news. Help, help us with the ambiguity of if rates go up, inflation goes up, there's a better economy, et cetera. There's a group that says the ambiguity will tilt towards woe is me, do this, do this, worry, and others saying this is every sign of a good economy. Which is it? You know, obviously, you know, a lot of people, if you're, if you're a big borrower, you're not going to want those higher rates. But, um, you know, we don't want to see the Fed or any central bank, for that matter, staying um, on the sidelines, staying in this emergency accommodative mode forever. I mean, that's obviously not good news, and it's not a good sign for the for the for any economy. So the fact that they are finally, um, you know, talking about not even talking about they're actually going to do it, um, they're going to start tapering. You know, probably to make the big announcement at the November meeting, and probably kick it off uh, um, before the end of the month or, or early or in the, at the December meeting. You know, the fact that they're actually doing that, I think, is speaks volumes for the economy and the fact that we are finally moving away from this emergency, these emergency measures and trying to get back toward some semblance of normalcy. Jennifer, can you respond to Danny Blanchflower, please, basically saying that the consumer sentiment indications point to a very different story than some of these other indicators, and yet we are seeing ongoing strength. Can you sort of pair these differences as we wait for that 10 a.m. Eastern University of Michigan sentiment survey? 
So I think those the, the surveys are always interesting to look at, but it, you know it's it depends on the timing of the survey, you know when you're catching. I mean I hate to say it, but you know your your mood could change. I think for you know from 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 day to day, but you know I think it's uh it's it's the overall trend. Like right now, for example, the University of Michigan uh, we're waiting for at 10 o'clock. The numbers have actually been uh, been fairly low, the confidence levels, but they are off the bottom, which is which is a good sign. And so I sort of like to, I take it as a mix between what we're seeing for the the conference board measure, for example, and the University of Michigan. But overall, you know, I think it all goes back to, you know, the fundamentals, uh, you know, whether or not there is a job out there for, for, the, for the average American. And we all know that the job market is extremely tight right now with still almost 11 million jobs available out there. So the job market is strong. Wages are rising. Yep. Uh, the household net worth, I still I believe, is at an all-time high as well. All those are really strong sources of support. So, yes, we'll get swayed by the day-to-day, um, you know, um, stories about, you know, about the Delta variant or, you know, with all these supply issues and all that. Um, but at the end of the day, just I think with the, uh, the average consumer, knowing that they have a steady income, knowing that they have a strong net worth, I think, speaks, again, speaks volumes. Jennifer, thank you for joining us. Jennifer Lee there of BMO. Now a one-hour conversation on Goldman Sachs. Well, okay, we'll do it in less than one hour. Christian Ballou joins us with a really, really important look at Goldman Sachs, senior analyst at Autonomous Research uh, this morning. Christian, I'm going to go retail on you. Lisa's got some other uh, thoughts. On Marcus, which you say is grossly underestimated, I want to talk to you about Clay Christensen and the classic innovator's dilemma and all of the major banks scared stiff of neobanks How's Solomon and Goldman Sachs doing on challenging the innovator's dilemma and doing Neobank right? They did a very good job. I think they had very early insights in, you know, 2015, 2016, that you could essentially build a a new type of bank, essentially, uh, from scratch. They don't have any legacy infrastructure, uh, whether that be physical footprint or or, um, uh, technology. And that allowed them to really create something interesting. Um, it's not perfect. Um, they still don't have a robust uh, check-in feature or robust uh, robust payment features. Uh, but I, I think I think the point here is I think they've been they're a very good job, and I think it's been someone to right. underlook. I think when you think about the partnerships that they've 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 they've, they've acquired, whether it's Apple, etc., it, it does speak to the, the technology prowess of of the Marcus Marcus uh, franchise. Will the old banks build their neobanks like Goldman, or will they acquire their neobanks? That's an interesting question. I probably leave that one to my, um, to, my to my bank colleagues. I think the issue in acquisitions is, I mean, these folks are expensive, right? Um, it would be uh, probably pretty dilutive to, to go out and acquire a decent-sized neobank. I assume my suspicion uh, is most of it will be done organically uh, from a build-up perspective. Uh, but again, uh, probably better for my, for my bad colleagues to comment on that. Christian, more broadly, why do you think that Goldman Sachs' transformation has been underappreciated by other analysts? It's, it's a great question. I think part of it is we are in a very robust part of the capital market cycle. As you just seen today, um, they could put, keep putting out blowout results, the blowout results, a lot of it driven by a traditional Goldman, you know, strong M&A, strong equities trading. Things that were, you know, that people are traditionally who don't know Goldman traditionally for, and I think it's it's really, um, if, if you like, masked uh, the broader transformation 
particularly in Marcus, and also very importantly on alternative, uh, um, the alternative asset manager. Remember, uh, at least by our analysis, Goldman is probably the fastest growing skilled alternative asset manager out there. That is not an easy feat given um, you know, the competitive landscape in that business. So there's been a lot of really good stuff going on underneath, but the reality is, you know, you know, results are just dominated by an absolutely awesome investment bank that's doing, yeah. you know, that is a, probably a top of the cycle. Well, that's, that's where I wanted to go with this. I mean, because if you actually look at asset management, there was a slight miss there, but really it's the investment banking, the trading that came in one and a half a billion dollars in revenue above what the expectation was. I mean, it was a blowout quarter. Is this the cycle peak or is this Goldman Sachs gaining share from others, gaining share particularly from the European peers? It's a good question. It's always hard to call a peak, so I'm not going to exactly call the peak, but we are somewhere around. Um, and we're, we're somewhere in the mountaintop, right? And you already begin to see some businesses roll over. So fixed income has already started to slow down. Equities is still growing. M&A is still growing. Uh, but, but clearly, we are, we are very strong here. Uh, 2020 and 2021 will be the best years for investment banking since 2009. Right. So, and, you know, we know what happened after 2009. Um, so so I, I, I do think we are uh, we are close to um, something that feels uh, a narrow peak. That said, though, with regards to Goldman, it's very important to remember that they've gained market share. So in fixed income, share has almost doubled by our analysis from 7% in 2017 to about 12, 13% uh, today. In equities, they've been getting about 100 basis points of market share every year since 2017 as well. So um, you have seen market share growth at Goldman. Um, so it's a combination of, of strong markets and market share gains. We compare Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley frequently. Who's winning in your opinion? Ooh, that's, it's, a, it's a really good question. Look, look, I think when you think about strategic evolution, it's very clear that Morgan Stanley is ahead, right? They, they've been on a longer path and arguably a kind of in a steady state now with a new business model, right? It's basically a wealth and asset manager. They are, their growth rates are comparable to anybody in the industry, best in class. Um, organic growth rates of almost 10%. That's comparable to, again, best in class, like a Schwab. So they really have, you know, they're there. They've, they've, they've figured out um, the strategy and they're, they're, they're um, I think they're there. I think Goldman is more of a process. We're still in the middle of the transition here. Uh, and so there's still a lot of execution to go. So if you were to ask me in terms of a, um, strategic transformation timeline, uh, Morgan Stanley is clearly ahead. Is there an urge to merge? I mean, I mentioned scale earlier. Is there a frenzy where we are in the interest rate environment or maybe the debt acquiring environment to do transactions, to do con combinations, to generate scale? I, I think so. Uh, I think Morgan Stanley has been the poster child of how to do this right. You know, you figure out a strategy and essentially take advantage of, um, um, you know, very accommodative markets to go out and accelerate that strategy by M&A. They bought each advance, um, a fast growing asset manager, and they bought E-Trade um, to really boost the wealth management uh, franchise. And it's, it's done wonders. They've actually had multiple expansion on buying essentially to companies that were diluted to tangible book, which it, it probably wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago. So, so I certainly am one that believes that a clever M&A, um, a business environment where innovation is happening very quickly um, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and financing is you know, very available 
M and A makes a lot of sense to, um, uh, right. to 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 accelerate growth. Got to leave it there, Christian Bolo. Thank for for the brief with autonomous research right. today on not global Wall Street, but well, they are global, but let's call it American Wall Street as well. As we spoke to Adam Posen in his allusion to the research of Olivier Blanchard, we now speak with John Lipsky. He's a former first deputy managing director and interim managing director of a tumultuous IMF. And what is so important about John Lipsky's work now at John Hopkins is not his public service, but the when of it. He was in the crucible of the financial crisis of 07, 08, and 09 with his service at the IMF. John, we have so little time and too many questions. With the uproar now on data integrity, when you were at the IMF, did you always and in each instance see data integrity? Absolutely. Uh, it's completely important and central to the IMF's being able to conduct its, uh, its work in an authoritative and uh, uh, comprehensive way. It's absolutely critical. And you know, the IMF over the years has made great efforts in conjunction, working together with its member countries to improve the production of data, uh, to improve the quality. And that, that goes on. I think in the current context, the IMF is going to redouble efforts to create uh, confidence in their data. John Lipsky, uh, my memory serves me. You gave a landmark speech in Hanoi a few years ago in Vietnam. And within that, you said Southeast Asia matters. Is the crisis at the IMF a time to, at the margin, give more governance to the Pacific Rim? Well, first of all, uh, I think we need to take a look at the idea that there's a crisis at the IMF. Certainly, there's been a, a kerfuffle of some consequence. Okay, fair, fair. Of, of, yes. of importance. Yesterday, the International Monetary and Financial Committee, the, that's the executive committee of the Board of Governors of the fund, reaffirmed its confidence in the managing director and essentially said, let's move forward from this, from this problem. But for sure, it's going to be important that the IMF membership comes to an agreement as it has said it would by December 2023 to undergo, to have a new review of quotas. And in that review, for sure, the fastest growing economies are going to be rewarded with a larger voting share in the fund. Almost without question, one of the litmus tests will be Will China become the number two, at least number two country in the IMF in terms of voting share? How does that change, John, the tenor of the IMF, the actions that the IMF takes if China becomes the number two? Actually, it's more, I think, a matter of image and pride than it is in terms of actual day-to-day -day working. The members of the IMF's executive board, that's the decision-making, political-level decision-making body in the fund, understands who China is, who Japan is, et cetera, et cetera. So in actual consideration of policies, uh, their weights are realistic. But in terms of voting shares and details and public image, it's of importance in ensuring the credibility of the institution. John, yesterday we had Mohammed Alarian on, and he said that right now he is very concerned about the diverging economic fates of the developed and the developing worlds. And he basically was saying that there are big potholes and vulnerabilities that are getting developed that potentially could come to a head in the near future. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And of course, that was one of the principal themes of the IMF's World Economic Outlook, that the recovery is showing divergence and looking forward, that divergence is going to get bigger. 
and that many of the developing countries are struggling in many ways that is going to continue into the coming years and action is needed. John, always great to catch up with you, sir. A voice I've always respected. John Lipsky there, the former first deputy managing director of the IMF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.